it only took a couple of seconds to destroy 40% of the city of Beirut on August 4, 2020. A couple of trivial seconds were enough to determine the fate of the urban and social fabric of the Lebanese capital and its architectural heritage. Years and years of accumulated cultural assets fell instantly in distress, causing more harm than the infamous 15-year civil war. These seconds have erased the past, present, and destroyed future aspirations. Words taken from Christelle Haru's article published in Art Daily just one month after Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, sustained two catastrophic blasts that left the northern side of the city in ruins. Hi there. We're back with Design in the City, and this is Alexandra Siebenthal. Today, we're tackling a little bit of a heartbreaking topic with two different guests. They will share their perspectives on what rebuilding the city of Beirut could look like after such an unbelievable event. First, we have the author from that article titled, Beirut, Between a Threatened Architectural Heritage and a Traumatized Collective Memory, published in Arc Daily. Her name is Christelle Haru, and the description of the devastation captures the shock the city experienced, a shock that followed the country's economic collapse atop a global pandemic. Christelle is a Beirut native, writer, managing editor at Arc Daily, as well as an architect and urban planner, who uses her expertise to address the contextual issues of the world through an architectural lens. Some of our longtime supporters and listeners might recognize her from her very first episode in which she interviewed Thomas Heatherwick at the 2019 Recite Conference. Before we jump into this conversation, just a note, you can head to recite.org podcasts and find the transcript along with images and follow along. And the same goes for any of our episodes. So without any further delay, let's connect with Christelle. Hi there, Christelle. Thanks so much for joining us. We're honored to have you as a guest this time. So to start, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and your background? Hi, Alex. I'm very happy to be again with you. So my name is Krista Haru. I'm an architect, an urban designer, and the managing editor of Arc Daily. I'm Lebanese and French, and I'm based in Beirut. And from this tiny capital, I reach the world through my work in the biggest architecture platform. So I focus a lot on cities and my writings and on the pressing issues that the world is facing. And I also try to highlight the role of women in the creative field. That's great. So as an urban designer and architect, how did you end up as a writer and now managing editor at Art Daily? Huge congratulations on the new position, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. So to be honest, I always been into writing, you know, like I've done it before, um, I've done it without giving it too much thinking. During my architectural studies, I used to use this approach to express my creativity and to reflect on subjects. And after I graduated, I contributed to a local architectural magazine for almost six years before ending up in Arc Daily. So I started as a content editor and then as a senior editor, and now I'm the managing editor. So being multidisciplinary in today's world is essential, I think. And um, I think it's also important to embrace the different aspects of your personality, like whatever makes you who you are and uh, not fit into like these traditional boxes that you are so used to. So in a way, I was able to put together both of my passions, writing and architecture, both uh, equally creative for me and equally challenging. So there isn't one without the other, I suppose. It's beautiful. I think that sort of multidisciplinary approach is quite helpful in the arena of city making. 
So as an architect, what do you love the most? You know, it's, <laughs> it's like one of the hardest questions to answer. Like, um, I don't know, it's hard to explain what I like about Beirut. And sometimes I can't help but think that this is maybe part of why I like it. Like, I could never figure it, figure it out. Like, I don't know if it's a question of vitality. The city is always animated, loud, vibrant, like literally at any hour of the day. Um, Beirut is technically the smell of the sun, sea, smoke, and lemons. This is a quote by Mahmoud Darwish that I love. I find it super genuine. Beirut is this charming chaos, crazy taste, mood swings, noises. Like, it's literally everything, and it has it all. And um, for me, also, Beirut is the people, their warmth, their passion. It's such a flamboyant city. Like, I don't know really how to explain it. It's all of this and so much more. And I don't think you can, like, grasp the idea of Beirut if you didn't come here. And... The only thing that I know and I'm sure of is that Beirut makes me feel alive. You wrote a really powerful piece uh, that was published in Arc Daily about a month after the blast. And I will link that in this uh, episode's description. It really provided an intimate look into that moment. And I was really able to feel like I was right there with you. Um, you know, I felt your collective pain, but I also felt your passion for the city shine through. Could you tell us about how this, you know, moment played out for you? Where were you? What was your initial reaction? Of course. So I actually had just returned home from a meeting in Beirut. Um, I live in the suburbs. It's like 15 minutes away from the capital. And I was on a Zoom call with the older team at Arc Daily when it happened. So technically every Tuesday we have our usual content meeting. And we're like um, 20 plus people talking. And as we were like discussing stuff, all of a sudden I see one of my colleagues, Hannah. She lives uh, in one of those high rises in Beirut. She's the second girl in Arc Daily that uh, works here uh, in Lebanon. I see her going under the table, hiding her head. And I was like, just like looking at her face, like what was happening? And then I heard the first explosion. And I, of course I didn't know what, uh, what it was at the time. I didn't understand anything. Like the whole house moved and I was so confused. And then the second sound was so much bigger. And at that time, I seriously thought that we were under attack and that this was the end at some point. Uh, so the internet, internet connection broke, phone signals also. Like you couldn't call or reach anyone. Like I just wanted to know what was happening. And I didn't know by, at the time because like there was nothing. So I went to the windows and saw everyone on the streets. Also, everyone was like looking super confused, asking each other what happened, trying to make sense of it. No, we had no idea because we were far and we, we were not inside of the capital. So we had some damages, but very minor, like at least 10 minutes passed before news started pouring and, um, and we knew what happened to Beirut. Uh, we were not sure. We knew that there was an explosion, but we didn't know what caused it at the time. And on that day, I literally called everyone I knew to make sure they were safe. So imagine you have to call every single person you know, everyone I ever met in my life. And uh, everyone else was also doing the same. I was receiving random calls from people I barely talked to just to make sure that I was uh, alive. Wow. Yeah, you were definitely the first person we thought of when you know we saw the news. It really sounds like you, you lived a nightmare. You have no idea how many emails I have received from like people that I work with, that uh, I talk to um, online asking me about this. I really can't imagine. It's completely shocking. 
So when you looked out your window, what could you see? Could you see any smoke or just, you know, make sense of anything that had happened? Like I could see smoke from where I am because like Beirut is on the sea and I'm also on the coast. So and Beirut is like a, like kind of a semi island, like it goes out of the shoreline. And uh, I could see like the smokes, but I had no idea what was going on. And like, I didn't know. Like, I thought we were really under attack. And I was like, who's attacking us? What's happening? At some point, I thought it was an earthquake and something like huge fell. Like, I, I thought about different scenarios, but I didn't even think for a second that this kind of explosion had happened and this kind of damage is uh, also. Can you tell us about the extent of the destruction? Yeah, like, um, as as I said in the article, like, 40% of the city was destroyed, like, be, uh, because of these two explosions on August 4. The only numbers I have are the ones from the preliminary reports that stated that there was, like, around 200,000 housing units affected, 40,000 building damage, 3,000 of which were, like, severely struck. We had 730 historical structure uh, the ones dating back to the 19th century harmed, 331 in despair and at risk of collapsing. And that's a huge number for a very small country like Lebanon. So when I went, actually, I went to, on the ground the second day, the amount of destruction was unbelievable. Like people, people were even saying that even during 15 years of civil war, they haven't witnessed this much devastation. Literally, buildings were glassless. The city was glassless. And it was so sad that you could feel that as if the city had lost part of its soul with this glass. It was kind of soulless. And uh, really, you cannot imagine the quantity of shattered and crushed glass, cladding, wood, metal, and aluminum elements on the street. It was really an apocalyptic scene, like one of those, uh, like one of those apocalyptic movies, exactly. So that's, of course, if we're talking about architecture, but you also have like infrastructural damages, economic damages, social, etc. Yeah, this really was a critical time for Lebanon and Beirut in particular. Um, so this really came as a crippling blow. I understand the blast occurred in the cultural hub of the city. Can you tell us about the neighborhoods which were most affected? Of course. So the main shaken neighborhoods are the ones that were directly facing the port. Like Mdawad, Rmeir, Jemaizeh, Ashafiyeh, Marim Khayel, Karantina, and Jaitewe. So these areas have the old, the new, the poor, and the rich. They have it all, you know? They had a mixture of Ottoman, French man mandate, modern, post-war structures, like everything was in there. And uh, the first actually to receive the shockwaves from the blast were the postmodern, the, the post-war uh, structure, like the contemporary structure, I would say, that uh, are facing the port directly. They were stripped down completely from their non-structural elements. Uh, so also these areas had a lot of restored architectural jams like Sursu um, Palace, the museum, etc. So it's a very, very, very rich area. And more than the architectural heritage, these neighborhoods were part of everyone's memory and experience. And this is why it was also so devastating. Of course, like part of mine too. Like everyone drank in Manu Khayel. Everyone had their first kiss on the stairs of Jemaize. They worked in Ashrafiyeh, partied in Karantina, went to school in Jaitewe, had their grandparents living in Mirmel, etc. So for most of us, like a big part of Beirut was in these particular neighborhoods. And losing them meant losing part of us. Like that part that actually kept us holding on to this country, holding on to Beirut. And 
these eras were, were like a hope for a better future. That's devastating. Um, and there's certainly a fair amount of grief that follows such a loss. At this point in time, you know, what does the city look like? How have people handled it and how have they carried on? Well, well, you know that um, since day one, like people were mobilized, people were trying to do something about it. They were going to the streets, helping each other, etc. So there's a lot of initiatives, but they're initially like um, they're initiated by people and not governments. So you have like um, a lot of uh, reconstruction work going on. But of course, these reconstruction works are like uh, uh, very punctual on sp- on uh, certain houses, etc. Because you don't have these huge funds that are actually restoring a whole city. So Beirut after three months is like the same thing, just cleaner. <laughs> I would say the streets are clean from the debris that were there. A lot of people have returned to their houses of course, because of uh, private initiatives or NGOs and organization. Um, but it's still a very sad, apocalyptic scene at night. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty unbelievable. So you said in your Arc Daily piece, we get the city we deserve. Can you maybe talk more about what this means for you? Well, I always say that a city is a mere reflection of its inhabitants. So... When I said we get the city we deserve, I wanted to have a provocative statement in a way, because especially in the context of Beirut, I used it because I wanted everyone to question their actions and to reevaluate the situation and to think again if this is what they deserve. Like by saying this, I'm making everyone who is reading the article, especially Lebanese people, think, wait, is this what we deserve? So at the end of the day, cities don't exist without people and governments are formed by people. So it's a way for me to make them rethink stuff and make them, like, uh, in a way, also think about the power that they hold because the power is always in people's hands. And, like, about that, I would also want to add that political regimes come and go, but cities are here to stay. So for me, it was kind of a wake-up call. Or for me, it was I had to wake other people I think this commentary strikes a familiar chord for many cities, and it's a sentiment I can relate to, you know, given a lot of the current events and just their general atmosphere. Definitely. Like, I use the example of Beirut because I know Beirut, but this can work anywhere else. And the wake-up call is for everyone out there and for everyone not just living in cities or anything. It's just for everyone to know that it's time to make a change and it's time to take actions and it's time to acknowledge the power that you hold. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's really, you know, what we want to do with these conversations, create calls to action for more than just urban planners and architects. I really like the idea that everyone who lives in a city can be an urbanist. We just need to activate that power, as you said. So in your article, you wrote about some of Beirut's lessons from the past in terms of urban governance and, you know, the challenges they face with a lot of institutional dysfunction. So you said a large part of the creative and academic community considers that the post-Civil War reconstruction of the city center carried out in the 90s by real estate tycoons has completely eradicated the previously existing urban and social fabric of the center. So it seems like this is the moment to redirect that and take a more people-centered, participatory approach to the city's development. 
How do you envision a corrective path and what steps can the Lebanese people take toward a more stable future? Okay, to tell you a bit more about what was happening in Beirut. So since day one, after the blast, the civil society has mobilized all of its efforts, hoping to lead like proper reconstruction attempts. And because they also wanted to avoid the repetition of past mistakes, like um, similar to what happened to the city center after the war, when we had top-down imposed rebuilding schemes and a lot of expropriation, privatization, and complete destruction of an existing urban and social fabric. So NGOs and organizations are actually leading these communal efforts to avoid, again, a change in demographic, a demographic change, a displacement of people, and of course, something that was happening before and that was uh, starting to happen, which is property speculation. So these organizations are the ones actually who are fighting every day to, to keep the original dynamics of neighborhoods and to keep individuals in their houses. And uh, they were the one that, and they are still the ones working towards rebuilding heritage buildings and also pre- preserving the urban fabric. So in fact, uh, these people, us, I would say, we have become a substitute for absent and corrupt governmental institutions. So we knew that in order to generate a radical change, we needed to be in the driving seat. This approach like, um, was completely born out of frustration, of need, and it was very organic at first, and it was individually formed. And after three months already, these groups were capable of coming together and actually having a tremendous impact, while governmental entities, also after three months, have only shown a great deal of negligence, lack of motivation and action. So the problem is, but the problem is when it comes to cities and planning, these like human, these, um, I would say, uh, people-driven entities have like limitations and a lot depends on institutional decisions to lead huge scale initiatives. So we're still, we're like stuck at this point. Yeah, it's a moment for bottom up initiatives to really step up. So how are the residents of Beirut responding as a community and what do they really have the power and ability to do given the current situation? So yeah, I would say it wasn't just about the residents of Beirut. So it was the whole country that was mobilized really like, It was heartwarming seeing everyone on the streets together, helping each other, coming from villages and other cities to lend a hand. Like since day one, I was there. I was on the on the streets trying to figure out how can I help. And a lot of people were also like me trying uh, to trying to literally lend a hand to anyone in any way possible. I actually worked with a lot of people who didn't know how to help, but just wanted to do something like a lot of people used to come up to me and say, "Okay, we need we want to help, but we don't know how like. Tell us where to go, who to help, what to do, etc. So it's, this tragedy somehow brought back like a whole nation together. And for a minute, they all forgot their differences and they focused on similarities. So August was a tragic month, but also August, and I would say also like September, because I'm saying August because people were on site, uh, on the streets uh, in August, August brought back a new also a new hope for a future like you could see this community coming together and in a way they were they had these same ideas and they knew that together they could make anything better that's beautiful yeah at the end of the day the structures and the buildings maybe burnt down and you know collapsed but there are still people cities are people 
Yeah, and yeah. Like we embody the city, so it's only as good as its people. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> no, sorry. I didn't mean to steal your words. Is there something particularly urban designers, architects, and investors from abroad can do to help? You know, that first, I actually think maybe it's time to look inside rather than always look on the outside for help. Like, especially for Beirut and especially for Lebanon. Because we're so accustomed to ask help from the outside or be influenced by the outside, by the West, I would also say. So no one knows the city better than the people living in it. The artists, the architects, the craftsmen, etc. Maybe this tragedy is actually teaching us to go back to what matters and to contextual solutions. And I think it's time to reevaluate everything, totally everything, from planning to construction laws to reconstruction approaches. And of course, it's time for change on a governmental level, because at the end of the day, cities also reflect systems and cities are um, the product of these systems. So in my opinion, reconstruction efforts should be driven by local perception, local vision, local craftsmanship with local materials in order for it truly to reflect the people of Beirut and to reflect everything they faced and they are still going through every day. Absolutely. And I like what you're saying with that. I really agree. The investment in local-based reconstruction could help in many ways to restore uh, restore the economy as well as some of the city's soul. Um, I think many communities can benefit a lot from that same kind of a mentality. So thank you for sharing that. I don't know why I see it um, as... I just want to say something more that... I don't know why I see it as it's kind of like time to go back to to sources, to essentials, to context you know to the community to um, the territory etc like um, i feel like it's the opposite of actually going global but maybe like be more focalized on and focused on inside issues if that makes sense it really is a theme i keep seeing or hearing about um in, in a lot of communities people moving around less and therefore getting more acquainted with their surroundings, getting to know their neighbors, helping each other out. Like my, my local coffee shop was making masks for everyone. You know, when the pandemic hit and in, in this age of globalization, I'm happy to see that that value can still find its place. It's really important. And major also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is how cities can retain identities in a lot of ways. You wrote something quite powerful in Art Daily Peace. You wrote a lot of powerful things. <laughs> um, but just about the collective Lebanese memory and its resiliency. It, it is what really helped me to feel, you know, you and, and the, what the Lebanese people were feeling. So I would like to read. You said, getting tired from romanticizing the notion of resilience, the question tormenting the Lebanese revolve around an unknown and unimaginable future. How much can a population endure before reaching its breaking point? The, the destruction of the capital is not limited to physical losses, but the two explosions struck to the core, shaking the Beirut ideology and shattering everything the city stood for. A beacon of hope, the city has always been the personification of optimism and inspiration for all its inhabitants and for all the Lebanese diaspora longing to return. However, Beirut today is not the Beirut of yesterday. And that collective memory of its people is in serious peril. Well, I wasn't very hopeful when I wrote that, now that you <laughs> say, now that I hear it again. 
So I wrote that article just a month after the tragedy. Like for a month, I couldn't write anything. And just after it, and just after this month, I wrote the first article that went out on Arc Daily. And um, to me, like the idea of resilience has become so outdated and unwanted. Like we didn't want to be resilient anymore. We didn't want to adjust anymore because it was part of our pattern. It was part of the Lebanese pattern in a way. But we just want, but just for this time, people were like refusing this idea. And the future seemed at the time really unimaginable. It felt like all of our memories were being destroyed because technically the places that we created these memories in were gone. So these spaces that tied this community together were shattered. And this new image that didn't feel like us were just was just being shown in a way. So I always repeat something that I read once and says that to destroy a city is to eliminate its past, present, and hope for the future. Beirut was losing its past at the moment, its, uh, its present and future for a second. And we were losing Beirut, which was actually unthinkable for us because losing Beirut meant losing ourselves. I also think that we need the city more than the city needs us in all cases, not just in Beirut. And because, as I said before, Beirut was the personification of hope, especially for the ones that had to leave and look for a better future, but always long to return. Today, I would say that I'm more optimistic. Uh, and just because signs of promise have emerged here and there, and I've witnessed uh, like uh, these driven initiatives by, by the people for the city. And I don't want to say this rentless hope that we have, but I also want to say it is really established by the people and for the people. And this, and you know, like human adjust and move on, but I just hope that they don't forget, but they just take a step uh, forward, keeping the, uh, keeping like uh, these ideas or keeping these events in mind to know how to act in the future. Um, so these people, people, Beiruti people, are actually restoring what is left, I think, of our faith in a better future. So restoring faith in a better future, that's crucial at this point. And I really agree with you about how sometimes resiliency can get over-romanticized. And, and in this case, it really just means survival. And there isn't really space for grief and reflection when a nation is in such a crux. And I guess it sort of sustains that collective trauma you're talking about. So what do you think the reconstruction of Beirut's cultural center, heritage buildings, and, and more contemporary structures will look like? Well, you know that it's true that uh, like around the world, we know how to restore traditional buildings. You know, there are rules for that, etc. Okay, this is set. But actually, how to rebuild relatively new constructions? Like, that's something that we never tackled before. Like, especially that some of these damaged uh, contemporary architecture is like three and five years old, <laughs> like very, very recent. So um, I think this is a very new topic. And I actually had the chance to discuss, uh, to discuss it with several architects that had their buildings damaged. And some of their buildings were directly facing the port and they took all the shockwaves. They actually absorbed all the first shockwaves. Um, actually, I will be featuring their views in an article about 21st century reconstruction processes. Um, one thing for sure is that they all agree that you cannot or should not rebuild a structure as it was before the incident, because that way you will be eliminating all scars or marks of this tragedy. I mean, like this new re reality should be, in a way, interpreted and integrated into our structures. We cannot just 
forget it and we cannot just erase it. Like, from, I think that our buildings are like us. They go through time, experiences, and occurrences. And just like us, they should be the result of everything they went through. So, of course, this is a very conceptual approach. But, but when it comes to like on-site action, the, the decision is for developers and tenants who live in these buildings. And, of course, what, will not, what, what is not helping is the lack of funding and the economic crisis. So I don't know how much... Uh, these ideas are gonna be concrete, uh, are gonna um, are gonna be interpreted or are, are gonna be real. But to my surprise, I have just learned that one of the major high rises facing the port, uh, a building by Bernard the one actually that was the most affected and where a lot of people lost their lives, will not be restored restored exactly the way it was. So um, the architect told me that people were actually keen on having a new approach, and. Uh, so they work together, like uh, the people of the building with the developer, with the, the original architect. They, they wanted to have a different approach. They wanted to find a new way to rehabilitate their building. So utilizing materials from the blast, upcycled and recycled. Of course, they wanted also to, to think about local stuff, like uh, local craftsmanship, local know-how, local materials, etc., and to me, I find this super motivating and enlightening that uh, these people are actually thinking this way and this is not just an architectural approach and that this might lead into something super interesting. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to watch uh, what comes of Beirut. And I don't want to say it's a blank canvas, but it definitely has some some new pieces to work with to, to truly reinvent itself. I agree also, and I think it's just time to rethink everything. So everything that happens has to be taken as an opportunity to evaluate and to draw conclusions and move forward, like forward with very short steps, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And Crystal, we touched on this briefly, um, that this incident was a real tipping point for Lebanon as the country was already dealing with you know, a great deal of other stressors, including a pandemic and an economic crisis. Can you set the scene a bit more what the city looked like pre-explosion? Well, of course. So actually, the whole country was going through a lot of things before the pandemic. So we had uh, we started having a crisis, I think, uh, since October last year. So there was like this economic crisis. Uh, people were revolting. They were taking the streets, uh, taking their uh, uh, demands to the streets. We were protesting all the time. Uh, like similar similar stuff were happening in Chile and uh, China, etc. So already the country was not uh, stable, I would say. And uh, on top of this, we had like um, the economic crisis. We had like... Um, uh, the currency have, uh, lost its value uh, and around I think February March we started having the lockdowns of uh, the COVID a lot of people were like uh, not working etc so uh, I think after that also like we had the blast that happened in August so if I actually retrace the whole uh, gear or so that we had we had the the economic crisis, we had uh, the protests, so we had like uh, the COVID, and then to top it all, we had the blast. And I would say that <laughs> there's 
like I don't know if the Lebanese people can still take anything and I don't know how much they can still endure I don't know how much we can still endure but it has been a very very tough year and it's also impressive to see people still adjusting and still uh, trying to figure out things like a lot of people to be honest have uh, left the country for better opportunities but I feel like the whole world actually is not uh, is not really a good place to be right now yeah you're right it's tough it just doesn't seem like there are any easy answers right now christelle thank you so much for sharing your time and your valuable insights with us it was really great to have you on the podcast again thank you alex it's always my pleasure That was the managing editor of Arc Daily and Beirut native, Christelle Haru. It was really special to have her back to address such a critical topic, the city at its breaking point. While there certainly are glimmers of hope, the threat Beirut faces is still tremendous and shouldn't be overlooked. Following our recording, Christelle has since published another piece on the city, interviews featuring architects who have recently completed newer contemporary structures, which are now facing reconstruction dilemmas and raising existential questions such as, how should reconstruction efforts of new damaged buildings look like? Should architects rebuild them as they were before the blast, erasing what has happened, or should they leave scars and portray the new realities? One of the architects interviewed, Paul Kalushian, quotes a philosopher, Alain Badiou, in his proposal to take some distance, think of new possibilities of a new world, and not just get busy with reconstruction without taking any time to invent something new. It's a poetic expose of visions for Beirut's future, made possible by taking a moment to truly recalibrate with purpose. We'll be sure to link her article. For the second part of this episode, we've asked another Beirut native, Salim Ruhana, to join us. Salim is the Senior Urban Governance and Resilience Task Team Leader at the World Bank Group. With a background in architecture and political science, he considers himself an activist for better urban living, focusing primarily on the areas related to decentralization, city competitiveness, urban resilience, disaster risk management, and urban and local governance, all throughout the Middle East. Salim was involved in preparing the Beirut Rapid Damage and Needs Assessment, along with the Reform, Recovery, and Reconstruction Framework on behalf of the World Bank following the August 2020 blast. Hi, Salim. Thanks so much for joining us on Design in the City. So first of all, thank you, Alexander, for having me. And, and I'm very happy to be on, on, the, on, on your platform. I think this is really a great opportunity for me to share, particularly on this uh, you know, Beirut explosion experience and what's happening afterwards. You're most welcome. We're very happy to have you. So I guess let's jump right into it. Um, were you in the city the day of the blast? What was your experience like? Um, so just to, to maybe give you a little bit of, of a background on, on, on what happened, I'm, I'm pretty sure you covered that pretty well. And, and almost all people do know uh, the, the, what happened in Beirut uh, this summer. Um, I was there in Beirut. I was sitting in a cafe working and, and really the explosion uh, uh, destroyed almost the entire cafe where I was sitting, and um, and I and I went out and I was looking around and seeing really people screaming and, and walking and 
um, and 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 really there is no there is no way to explain, if, if you will, the, um, the amplitude of, of what happened. Um, you can see that in, in videos and pictures, but it's just a really a traumatizing experience uh, for me and for many people who were in Beirut, and and I have to say for all people who love that city, which is a very particular city, very energetic city, very creative city, and a city that always managed to to, to bring the best out of people in in there. Um, Since the explosion, um, despite the lack of of government intervention and capacity and willingness even to to intervene and to, to react and to respond to this crisis, I have to say that that civil society and people of Beirut and Lebanon managed to really respond in a, in a magnificent way. The same day, the second day, I was there on the streets and I saw thousands of young women and men going down to the streets, supported by the Lebanese Red Cross, by existing established NGOs, and and really just to to help people who who are on the streets to to. To, to pick up their wounds, their immediate wounds, and respond really to the immediate shock that this explosion uh, had. Um, very, very rapidly after that, we saw the creation of a lot of civil society uh, uh, organizations and movements that are specializing in uh, recovery and reconstruction and rehabilitating what I call uh, houses and souls. So a lot are focusing on you know, uh, vulnerable communities and vulnerable households to be able to help them rebuild uh, their, you know, their windows, their shattered houses, but also trying to help them with medical support, with uh, 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 post-traumatic support, also psychological support. And really, we, we saw a lot of a lot of innovative initiative happening on, on the on the ground to be able to really bring that dynamic and to have to leverage each other's uh, skill and, and interest to, to, to really help the most vulnerable. And, and in that area that is affected, which is Marukhayel, Jemaize, Bush Hamoud, uh, Karantina, there are tons of vulnerable households, be it elderly, be it poor, Lebanese and refugees, among others, uh, uh, women-led households, uh, who really have been hit the most out of that, uh, uh, from that explosion and that the impact of that crisis. Yeah, there's been really, you know, a lot of talk coming out um, about how people really have come together. Were you able to get involved? So I have to say that, you know, in addition to that kind of very amazing drive and energy of civil society, you know, I had the opportunity um, or the occasion to be in Beirut at that point in time. And I mobilized as well immediately with the World Bank, which I you know I'm, I, I work for, um, that was also a great opportunity for me to really do something and immediately. So the, the next day, we put together a, a large team to prepare with the European Union, with the United Nations, something that we call the Rapid Disaster, disaster Needs Assessment, Damage and Needs Assessment. So what we call the RDNA, the Rapid Damage and Needs Assessment, that really brought together a lot of stakeholders that are doing assessments, that are interested in assessing the damage. Because the first thing to do uh, in addition, of course, to the humanitarian support and the immediate response, to be able to really quantify and mobilize resources and understand the level of damage of this explosion on people, on households, on individuals, on businesses, on small and medium and micro enterprises, which the area is extremely rich of, 
is really to really understand what are the damages, what are the needs, and how to recover uh, from from that uh, impact. And, and I had really the opportunity to, to mobilize immediately. Uh, I, I felt I, I, I felt there is purpose in my existence uh, at that point in time in Beirut, and it reduced a lot of my personal trauma because I was mobilized. I, I tried as much as possible with my colleagues, with my friends, everyone around to work with civil society, with other stakeholders, and, and government as well, to be able to really uh, bring this uh, assessment together and, and also have it as an instrument to allow everyone around uh, to, to understand the, the really the scale and the impact of the, of the explosion. Um, so really, um, immediately after that, as I explained, everyone mobilized. Uh, you know, there is a lot of um, excessive, and, and I think I have to give a lot of credit to the Lebanese Red Cross, who also mobilized in an exceptional way not only humanitarianly, not only on the disaster response, but also doing a lot of the assessments that are extremely important and extremely crucial uh, to mobilize, you know, donor community and others. A lot of Lebanese living abroad and in Lebanon also mobilized. A lot of fundraising happened. Tens of millions of dollars were immediately mobilized by private individuals to be able to respond to the most vulnerable households all of that dynamic, I think, and I believe, helped uh, the city cope better with the shock uh, that, uh, that that it, it was hit by. And also, uh, of course, it helped also a lot of young people, young women and men, find purpose, uh, particularly with the anger, with the frustration. Uh, uh, they, they really managed to find a kind of purpose uh, and to, to be able to deliver and to, to work on the ground directly with a lot of those, again, organized uh, civil society uh, groups and movements and NGOs. Um, I went back, you know, I left Beirut in October, so I live in Tunis. I left Beirut, Beirut in, in October to come back in December. I saw really a city rising from 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 from, uh, from ashes. It's it's not only metaphorical, it's, it's very visual. Uh, Bars, pubs, cafes, businesses are reopening progressively at a speed that you know you 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 can't but admire. Uh, but there is much more to do, and I think that is something extremely important. With private initiative, with private goodwill, it's not enough. There is a lot to be done to be able to recover effectively from from this shock, uh, to be able to build back better, to be able to. Uh, to, to restore faith in, in institutions and in government, to be able to uh, allow local economy, particularly in those affected areas that were completely destroyed, uh, to be able to rise again, to bring value, and to really put Beirut in where it, where it belongs, in a competitive place economically, culturally, socially, among, among others. What would you say were the biggest takeaways? What was learned? So, first of all, what I learned is that this is not only anecdotal, but it really takes a village. Uh, it's not one's business to rebuild, to recover from this disaster. Uh, everyone has something to do in this recovery because this explosion didn't only affect Beirut, didn't only affect people's lives, and you know, more than 200 people lost their lives. Thousands, among you know, among them, my friends and my relatives were wounded and, and had to be hospitalized. 
Um, so it didn't only affect those. It didn't only affect those who lost their businesses, their jobs, their um, their um, their houses, or you know, or had damages in all of those. This explosion affected the entire country. Um, this explosion is first of all a testimony of failure of governments, uh, neglect, corruption, uh, but it's also a testimony, and it led to a complete loss of faith in what you know politics and governance are and it, lo- it also led of course to another compound impact to many of the impacts that we've been witnessing and many of the crises that we've been witnessing in Lebanon the economic the financial uh, the security the fragility uh, the refugee crisis um, the financial again on the banking sector uh, collapse among others so this this shock Really was a, a, and then the COVID crisis, of course, not not to not to mention the the, the revolts on the streets. Um, this this really explosion came to give it a, a final head. But I have to say, this is also an opportunity to decide on what path Lebanese uh, citizens, uh, organized groups, and and uh, and government, where do they want to go? What scenario do they want to take to recover? Do they want to go for the collapse? That's a scenario, because that kind of explosion with the COVID crisis we're witnessing and the political crisis usually could lead easily to a full collapse of the economy, which we're witnessing parts of it, but not only full collapse of the economy, but also of the social contract and the social stability that we know in Lebanon. The second scenario is try to come out with the most mediocre of situations, trying to say, well, let's try to recover with least damaged and least and least opportunity possible. Go back to the status quo. That's what I call the missed opportunity. So the first one is a disaster. This is a missed opportunity. And the third scenario is to say, and that's part of our, our DNA and our 3RF and how we're, we're building that kind of recovery framework, is to say, well, can we use this crisis, this tragedy, as an opportunity to rise better? To recover sustainably, inclusively, efficiently. Is there a way to recover better? And that's where you need everyone. You need a village to do that. You need, again, individuals, civil society, government, politicians, uh, groups of interests, um, syndicates, everyone, universities. uh, You need everyone to be mobilized, to be able to move this country forward and to use this opportunity to recover better. And the, and the 3RF and the RDNA present a little bit the framework in which you could use and you could leverage the financing, the reconstruction, the recovery effort to be able to build a better country broadly. So how to move forward with reforms, how to move forward with uh, transparency, accountability, how to build sustainably. Uh, a lot of things I think are there and those frameworks, they're not the solution, but they give you an idea of how can you really recover better. So we know the Lebanese economy was already crumbling prior to the explosion, and we already touched on this a bit with Christelle, but uh, perhaps you can add more insight. Can you speak on the state of the country leading up to the explosion and what other factors may have played a role? So prior to the explosion, the country was going through multiple shocks. Um you know, the, the, the Arab Spring had its uh, ripple effects on, on, on the country, you know, the destabilizing, the massive destabilization in Syria, the uh, 
the refugee flows um, more around third of the Lebanese uh, or residents in Lebanon today. That's what you know. There's a lot of numbers that say between 20 and 30 percent are are refugees. Uh, so those are extreme pressures on, on on your economy and also an opportunity, I have to say. And, and you know, particularly that Lebanese managed to, and and, the, and I have to say that you know the stability and the and the uh, and the peace that that uh, was was there, I think, is a testimony of the close ties and relationships between the you know the two people, but also on the on the hospita- hospitality, I have to say. Um, and on the other hand, you had course, a political crisis that is enduring. Uh, I don't know those who know, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people know what's happening in Lebanon, but uh, we're, we're inheriting a lot of political issues for decades. Um, major divergences and political opinions, perspectives, uh, and visions that are hardly reconcilable. Um, lack of trust in government, full lack of trust in government, um, due to uh, real and perceived corruption due to uh, weak governance structures and models, really a very weak state. I think we're, we're also weakening that further because of the political tensions and, and divergences. The state is just weakening further and further. Uh, also, Lebanon is not uh, away from the political, from the economic uh, shocks that are hitting the world, but particularly Lebanon because of, again, the the the... Uh, the weak governance, a lot of mistrust, a lot of uh, mismanagement of of, um, of public resources. The country is facing also one of its worst economic crises, in particularly with the collapse of the financial system in Lebanon. Um, so all of those, in addition to the COVID crisis, which is just you know hitting the last nail in the coffin, to put it that way, uh, are 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 a compound of risks that. No country is able to uh, to manage, uh, particularly when you have a humongously divided political uh, elite and a, a very weak governance and a full lack of trust in, in the political system, and political and the governance system. So that is the situation before the explosion. So the explosion just gave it a hit that uh, you you know how to flip it around and build better or you're just going to go into into full collapse. Lebanon has really been through so much. So how, how do you rebuild? Where do you start? How do you set your priorities? First of all, there is there is value in, in vision. Uh, today, the country, as I mentioned, lacks complete consensus on what its future should look like. And that by future, I mean its economic future, its social future, and its political future. Uh, there is really a complete vacuum of vision today on where this country can go. Same thing could be said about the recovery and reconstruction. There is complete lack of of vision of what uh, recovering from this current shock uh, should look like. So really compensating people for losses of, 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 of assets, loss, uh, supporting those who lost uh, and were affected by uh, by this crisis, who lost particularly those who lost their loved ones, really being in their support, um, supporting the most vulnerable, and then on the other hand, because Beirut is and particularly the area that was affected was the, the some kind of a, somehow the the heart of Beirut's creative industries, which are really very well known in the region and globally, it's also trying to 
support those to become even better than they used to be. So recreating creative industry value chains, linking producers to designers to to, to markets, um, really use this opportunity to say, well, this used to be the heart of Lebanon's creative industries, of Lebanon's even uh, uh, artisanal industries, of Lebanon's small and medium enterprises, uh, how can we do that better? How can we rebuild that better? How can we uh, uh, reshape that better? And I think there's a great opportunity there. Today, the Beirut brand on any type of, of item is really appreciated globally. So how can you support those? And there's a lot of programs that you can do, government-led, civil society-led, to really recreate jobs. Because people, at the end, once you fix their homes and you fix their their, their neighborhoods and, and you build better, uh, what they're interested and they need on the longer term is those jobs. They need to feel involved economically. And, and I think that's something you need to think through while thinking how to rebuild the infrastructure, the services, the quality of life, the house, the houses, also how to rebuild your economy, how to rebuild those small and medium enterprises that were extremely affected and damaged in this, in this explosion. Something we've seen a lot of, and we'd love to hear your take on it, is how architects and other designers should go about rehabilitating buildings with discussions on both modern buildings where the architect is still practicing, uh, you know, versus heritage buildings. So I, I have less of a concern for modern architectural buildings because, you know, the architects are still there. A lot of the enterprises that build them are still there. So there there will be ways of, of rehabilitating them and and. Um, stabilizing them and making sure that people can go to, back to their homes safely and rapidly. Uh, my real concern is on the heritage and relatively the post-heritage buildings, which um, are in a catastrophic situation after the, the blast and also that do house a lot of, you know, middle, lower middle and poor communities in Beirut. And I think there's a lot to be done there and there's a lot of creative ways to uh, to rebuild while keeping those vulnerable households in their homes. And I think that's extremely important because the wealth of Beirut is a mix of two things. It's built heritage and it's people. You can't lose one of both. You, you, we cannot afford to lose any of those two. So as we mentioned earlier, the people, we want to preserve them. We want to keep them. We want to make sure that they are there, they are strengthened. And also the built heritage needs to be restored and be the kind of recipient for the creative uh, industries that we spoke about, but also for the communities, vulnerable and non-vulnerable, that are living in the city. There are a million ways to do that through specific interventions, funds to restore heritage. Hopefully the donors, such as the World Bank and the international community, will also mobilize resources to rebuild that tangible heritage that are beautiful architecture that the city so beyond the physical damage, what do you feel is the unseen damage to the city and the economy? How are people in the city facilitating the long-term recovery and emotional recovery? So the, the unseen damage, as you say it, is particularly the psychological damage. Um, yeah, so the really people from Beirut and, and from Lebanon are going through maybe one of their worst traumas. And a lot of my friends that I speak to just and my, my family they all tell me that this is even, as a trauma, this might be even worse than the civil war that we've been through for 15 years. It's, it was so sudden, so shocking. Um, 
people, young people are losing hope. So we're, we're having maybe today one of the worst brain drains in our history. Um, those are the unseen impact. People's uh, well-being, people's uh, psycho, psychological well-being, and also the entire skills and resources and, and, and young women and men just leaving the country in waves because they don't see any more future for them there. That's I, I believe you can restore anything except for uh, uh, for the loss of people. Those are generations lost. And when you lose generations, it takes you many generations to build that back. Uh, and I think that's really, um, th there is a lot to be done to try to uh, uh, reduce that flow of, 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 of talent, of immigration of talent uh, that's just going, not because they want to go, because they're pushed to go. You know, I'm, I'm someone who left the country, but I you know, had a great opportunity. I was very excited and eager to travel and discover the world. But it's sad to see people who want to stay being pushed, continuously pushed. And those are the lost generations of this country, of Lebanon, that will never be uh, uh, recouped again, that will never be found again. Where is the trust or the hope for Beirut's future coming from? So I, I feel that... Uh, you know, I, I, I really personally, I, I, I feel that there is an important role for government to play in the next five to ten years. We can't build a country without a government, without a, a, an existing, a new political elite, uh, a transparent and accountable government, an inclusive, sustainable. Uh, I do believe that uh, there, is, there is a way to rebuild better. And, and that starts from... Um, government working very closely with civil society, with academia, with uh, individuals, uh, really working very, very closely to build a collective vision on how we want our city first and our country to look like in the 5, 10, 20 years. And then really work together in that direction and work particularly transparently and inclusively. Because, you know, that's something we don't know how to do, neither in Lebanon nor in other countries in the Arab world. We're very weak when it comes to really building systems of accountability and inclusion and other. But this is something we can do. They're easy. The techniques are easy. The tools are easy. So uh, the way forward and the only way forward is to, to, to collaborate, put the resources needed, you know, and we, we, we are talking about hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars, but put those resources to build back better because economically in the future, we will recoup that. Uh, so we need to recover. We need to build, but we need to do it the right way. There is no, you, you can do this twice. This is one of the lessons we learned from the post-war reconstruction in Lebanon and, is that you can't reconstruct twice. You do it once. So you have to do it well. So Beirut deserves to be built back better uh, to be built back in a very, very inclusive manner, really to have the voice of people living there and, and involved there heard while designing the city of the future. And then think through the, 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 the reconstruction architecturally, aesthetically, economically, uh, socially. Really think creatively on how you're able to build that city to become a beacon of hope, in, in, in not only in Lebanon, but also in the Middle East as it always been. Absolutely. Urbanism and good governance are just so deeply linked. What lessons can we learn from 
um, you know, good examples of regrowth and recovery after nine, excuse me, after natural and man-made disasters in other part of the world, you know, ones that Beirut can adopt to. So one lesson I think that we, we, we take from all of those examples is one that I've already mentioned, which is you only have the chance to rebuild once. So the kind of trial and error doesn't work with reconstruction. So you really have one chance to do it, so do it well. And because you have one chance to do it, I think you have to do it in a very inclusive manner. Because you you might think that, uh, that you know what people want, but you really don't know anything. Um, so really, I, I, I encourage anyone in, intervening in the public space today in Lebanon is to really be the most inclusive possible. And the tools and instruments, be it online, be it physical, virtual, there's so numerous and so creative ways of engaging with, with, with kids, with youth, with women, with men, with elderly, uh, with different marginalized groups as refugees and, and more gender-based uh, 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 vulnerable groups. There are a million ways of, 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 of building this collective vision and, and really working together into achieving it. So there is no, so you have one chance and you have the chance to do it very inclusively. I think that is what I would take from a lot of the, the experiences we had in Lebanon. We, we, built, we built Beirut multiple times and we, we built our country multiple times, particularly during and after the Civil War. The, the Second World War, um, you know, cities in, uh, in, um, in, uh, across the world that faced different type of, 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 of damages and disasters. Really, you only have one chance to do it well. So Beirut in 10 years, what does that look like to you? That's, I think that's the most, that's the toughest question, but, but I'm gonna, you know, like, I don't know how much you know about Lebanese culture, but we, we, we love reading in, in coffee cups, you know, the fortune telling, you know, we, we love those things. There are a lot of old traditions into fortune telling. So if I'm, if I'm reading a positive cup right now, and I'm seeing Beirut in 10 years, I would say that I would see a city filled with light. A city where people have an amazing access to public services. A city that is clean, green, with a clean air, which is nothing of what it is today. A city that is inclusive for all, creative for all, Young people, men, women, uh, vulnerable communities, refugees, migrants, and attractive to all of those groups so that it's really a city that is just a hub, a city of innovation, which it was, it is, it continues to be, but it can be much more than that. A city that inspires, uh, a city that is the heart of freedom of expression, which is one of the rare spots today in the Arab world, um, and it continues to be, uh, again, a city of light. Um, today it is not. It's not a city of light. So I hope that in 10 years, um, and this is a message to a lot of people to go visit Lebanon, a lot of Lebanese who are aiming to leave, to, to rethink, because I believe that with the energy I saw and I see and I continue to see, there is hope for the city to become all of what I've mentioned about. So that's my vision. That's my, my that's my dream. That's beautiful. 
I think that's a good dream to have. So Salim, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else you feel we didn't speak on enough or you feel that you would like to add? Honestly, I, I you know, I think that um first of all i want to thank you a lot for this opportunity really i'm i'm you know i'm so passionate about about beirut about lebanon um about architecture about uh, economic recovery and social recovery um so i'm really very grateful for this opportunity today uh, but i have to say that uh, uh, there is hope there is an opportunity um and I and I I'm I'm one of the few today who see light at the end of the tunnel, not because the political, economic, or geopolitical situation allows it. It's just because you know Beirut is all about its its citizens, its inhabitants, and those inhabitants have proven more and more not to be particularly resilient, but to be creative, to be forward looking, to find solutions to climb out of their, uh, the challenges that they're confronted. And that really gives hope for the city, uh, for its, its form, for its content, and for its economy. So I'm, I'm really very hopeful that um, in, in a few years' time, in a few months, I have to say, in a few years, we'll start seeing a recovery of the current, of, the, of Beirut that we know, of Lebanon that we know, despite the, the, the time that it would require to recover fully. Thank you. Thank you so much, Salim. It was our pleasure. That was Salim Ruhana, Senior Urban Governance and Resilience Task Team Leader for the World Bank Group. I think it's safe to assume that if you're listening to this, you care about cities, communities, etc and probably feel a deep empathy for what has happened to Beirut. If there's one thing we've taken away from both Salim and Christelle's powerful testimonies, it's this bright, bold hope that seems to be rising from the dust by way of the Lebanese people. A hope that feels contagious. And I'm grateful that Resite is able to use our platform to be a steward of these stories. It truly is, as Christelle said, that cities are really just made up of people. All the articles and materials we've referenced will be available in this episode's description. You can also head to resite.org slash podcasts and find the transcript, along with images from Christelle, Salim, and photographer Rami Vrishk. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to our guests for their collaboration, as well as both Elizabeth Mills and Elizabeth Novacek for their contributions in creating this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Recite, the global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. It was recorded at the WeWork offices in Prague with the support of the Czech Ministry of Culture and Nano Energies. You can find more talks, stories, and podcasts at Recite.org or become involved with the Recite community through our various social channels. Everything you need can be found in the description. Thank you for listening to Design in the City. This podcast was produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with support from Martin Berry, Radika Ondrachkova, Elizabeth Mills, and Elizabeth Novacek, and edited by Little Big Studio.